Welcome to the Basilea Hollywood Podcast, a community of friends committed to the message and practice of Jesus and His Kingdom. If you don't know, Bill has some tattoos. And uh, Bill, would you be willing to, to share with us about one of your tattoos? Maybe when you got it, why you got it. I got this one because I like Jesus. And I got it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, this is the last one I got. And I got it probably a couple weeks after I kind of came alive to Jesus. And I wanted to represent that. So I did. That is commitment. <laughs> uh, can I pray for you? I'll also add, this is one of the least painful places to get one if you're thinking about getting one, so. (laughs) So, uh, let's all extend our hand to Bill. Let's pray for him. God, thank you for Bill. Thank you for his, uh, his mind and his heart. May they converge as he teaches us. And may we hear a word from you as he teaches scripture. If you would like to follow along and have a a Bible in front of you, I encourage that. If you brought one, feel free to take it out. If you have a device that you use to do that. You might want to take that out, or if you don't have those things and you'd like one of these Bibles handed to you, raise your hand and I or someone will hand you one. If you are using one of those Bibles, anyone else want one? If you're using um, one of these Bibles, go to page 1069, otherwise find John 625. Before we get started... Uh, I'll just let you, I'll remind you that we are doing the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Today is I am the bread of life. We all know what bread is, but I thought I'd remind us by having this nice picture up there. And, uh, you know, we all know how food works, so I don't know if I need to say a whole lot there. The function of food hasn't changed that much. But Harry did point out, and it's a helpful point, that uh, these days, bread is a little more marginal in terms of food than, than it used to be because there's carb issues and there's gluten stuff and people, you know, people don't eat so much bread anymore. We eat more other stuff. Uh, but, and bread is actually kind of lame nowadays too. I don't really like the sliced bread that much. This kind of stuff I like. Like imagine, so when I say bread, don't think about like, oh, okay, a little piece of Wonder Bread that you put on the side of, I don't know, that someone puts on the side of their meal. Uh, Think about, you know, that nice fresh bread that's fresh out of the oven, still steaming, and it's all mm, warm and happy and tasty and delicious. And, uh, of course, in ancient times, bread was more central, and so it was a a lot more key to the meal. So that is important. It's kind of a key food. Okay, so uh, before I read our passage, I just want to say a little bit about what has happened recently. So shortly before the passage I'm going to read you, Jesus has, uh, was teaching in the wilderness. 
to thousands of people, and then it got late, and they were hungry, and he wanted them fed, but there wasn't food because there's a lot of people, and they just had, you, you, most of you know the story, I'm sure. There's one kid, he's got his lunch with him, he's got how many loaves? Five loaves, how many fish? Two fish, and so it's, it's one kid's lunch, I mean, they're probably small loaves, and, uh, and somehow... Jesus blesses the bread, breaks it, and distributes it to his disciples who distribute it to the people. And it's, I believe it says 5,000 men plus women and children. So thousands and thousands of people eat, and they don't eat one crumb. They eat until they're satisfied. They, they eat until they're full, until they go into a food coma and fall asleep there. <clears throat> so they had a lot to eat, and they actually had more leftover bread at the end than they started with. They gathered up I think it was, five, it was either five or 12 baskets full. So they have more bread at the end than when they started, and thousands of people ate from one kid's lunch, and that's an amazing miracle that is otherwise inexplicable. I don't know what it would have looked like if we were watching it, but somehow this happened. So that happened recently. Then Jesus, at once everyone is in their food coma and falls asleep, Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, and the folks wake up in the morning, they see he's gone. They actually go around the Sea of Galilee and find him. And so they've just found him when we get to John 6, 25. And here we go. <clears throat> when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them. He doesn't really answer them. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. There's a number of things there. I'm not going to talk about all of it. I'm going to read you a lot of text today. So I'll just make comments here and there. But the basic thing here is the people apparently are coming to Jesus looking for more bread. I don't know if it's just that they got hungry again or they, I don't know if they knew it was a miracle and wanted to see another miracle or what. But fundamentally, they've, they've come to Jesus looking for bread and he's saying that what you really ought to be looking for is true bread, eternal bread, bread that gives eternal life. That's what you ought to be seeking me for. Just looking for bread, bread to eat is insufficient. Somehow that's an inadequate way to pursue Jesus. You need to be looking for the true bread. Verse 30, so they said to him, what sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it is my father who gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So essentially their response is, Okay, you're, you're saying that you have bread that gives eternal life and that we're supposed to believe in you. But you know, uh, in the time of Moses, our ancestors were in the wilderness and God provided bread for them to eat miraculously, bread from heaven. Are you going to do anything like that? Now yesterday... He fed thousands of people, the same people that we're talking here to, uh, with one kid's lunch. And they're saying, hey, are you going to do any kind of like amazing, miraculous multiplication of food so that we can know you are who you say you are? 
So they're not quite getting it, but he's talking about it, and they understand this sounds good. He has bread from God, better bread than regular bread. And they say, okay, give us this bread because it sounds like the good stuff. We want the good stuff. So they're not quite getting it, but they know that there's something there. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, and this is our key statement, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes... Let's, let's say, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. That's good news, so I'll say it again. Anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So there are a number of things he introduces here. First, not only does he have bread that produces eternal life, but he is the bread from God that produces eternal life. And he also notes that actually a lot of people aren't getting it. A lot of people aren't believing him in the way that they need to believe him. Those who do believe him in a way that counts, those who do believe him truly, believe him because God made it so. So it's not just in in a way that you'd said elsewhere, uh, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loves us or you know, elsewhere, you did not choose me, but I chose you, things like that. that. That actually for us to come to Jesus in the right way, God does that. God makes that happen. God, it takes an act of God to bridge the gap between us and Jesus. <clears throat> now, one of the things that's important about that is if our coming to Jesus is something that happens by the will of God, I, I don't think the point here is so much... Uh, an election thing as that if we do come to Jesus, we can count on that he won't drop the ball. It's an act of God. It's the will of God for this to be brought to completion, that that everyone that God gives to Jesus will be raised up on the last day. So essentially what that means to me is Jesus won't drop the ball. Jesus won't quit halfway through. He will, God will finish what God has started. And so if we've come to Jesus, we can trust that that will lead to eternal life, that that will lead to being raised up on the last day. And that is good news. Somebody say amen. amen. <clears throat> Verse 41, Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. And then skipping to 49, uh, because he more or less says the same things in a number of different ways. He says, Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. And then verse 51, uh, The bread that I give, the bread that I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. And uh, one of the things to notice here is that people keep having these questions. They're not quite sure what Jesus is saying. And he doesn't really answer their questions. 
He's a little, I hate to say this because it'll maybe sound like a negative thing, but he's a little bit like, you know, today's politicians, right? Like, they, you, say, you, you steer things where you want to. You say what you want to say. You take any question and turn it into, oh, yes, well, now that you mention it, I'm the, you know, so there's, so he's not clarifying. He's not addressing people's concerns. He's actually digging himself deeper and deeper into this misunderstanding that people are having. And a lot of the things he say are susceptible to misunderstanding, right? People are looking at him saying, wait, you're telling us you came down from heaven? We knew you when you were, you know, some of us knew you growing up. We knew you when you were still pooping your pants. We know your parents. We knew you when you had acne and your voice was cracking. Don't tell us you came from heaven. You're just like us. That's a legitimate objection to what he's been saying. And he doesn't really clarify. He just keeps digging himself deeper. And then he says, oh, by the way, the bread that, that I'm giving you that leads to eternal life, it's my flesh. <clears throat> Verse 52. <clears throat> the Jews then disrupted, uh, disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Good question. So Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. Not a whole lot of clarity there. Jesus keeps expanding on what he's saying. In effect, what they're saying is, wait, wait, you're saying you're going to give us your flesh to eat? That's weird. And his answer is, oh, I'm sorry, was that unclear? What I'm saying is, unless you take the flesh off my bones, put it in your mouth, chew it up, swallow it into your stomach, and then drink the blood from my veins... You won't have eternal life. That's clear now, right? In fact, <laughs> I want you to imagine if someone came in from the sidewalk today as we're gathered here and just walked in and grabbed the mic and said, folks, I have an important announcement. I need you all to know. <clears throat> I, and I alone, am the true bread that came from God, came down from heaven, that is, that is to say, I came down from heaven, and you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood because my flesh is more truly food than food is, and my blood is more truly drink than drink is. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have eternal life. But if you do eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll live forever. What are we going to think about this person? They need help, right? They, there's something wrong here. Someone, you know, something has gone wrong. Someone is not taking their medication or something. They need help. They're not right. There's something off in their mind. That's what we would have to assume. It's an understandable thing to be confused about. You might say this teaching is hard to swallow. Think about it. That was, that was good, yeah. Um, it, sounds, it sounds awfully cannibalistic, right? It's interesting that uh, in the first couple of centuries that the church was meeting, 
and people were meeting in secret, so outsiders didn't really know what was going on, uh, a lot of people did accuse Christians of cannibalism because they just didn't know what to do with this flesh and blood eating thing. I mean, it's easy to see how you'd get mixed up. And so that was one of the, one of the criticisms. Oh, those guys are doing all this weird cannibalistic stuff, and I was talking about loving each other, and I, something's up with those people. They're misunderstood. And you might look at this, you say, okay, well, Bill, I mean, we know what he's talking about. We know about uh, the Eucharist, right, the bread and the cup, and that, that he says, this is my body broken for you, and so forth, and that what we're doing when we consume this is acknowledging our dependence on Jesus' death, uh, his willing death on the cross for us to um, pay for our sins and reconcile us to God or something like that. What's very interesting is if you look um, at the Last Supper in John, there is no bread and cup there. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does the this is my body broken for you thing. In John, he washes his disciples' feet. So there's no help there as far as understanding what in the world he's talking about. If you only had John, you don't get a lot of clarity. You just kind of are with the, with the crowd going, what? Eat your flesh? And, and the very attentive reader might notice that at the end he's crucified. And Okay, so I guess it's like that is nourishing or something. And, and okay, that's probably what he meant. But you have to really think about it to figure that out. It's very hard to make sense of this passage if you aren't used to you know, a history of Christianity. For the earliest hearers, this is very hard to make sense of. So verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? No kidding. This is scandalous. This is objectionable. And so <clears throat> people have a hard time with it. And again, Jesus has multiple times brought up the fact that for someone to come to him takes an act of God. For someone to truly come to him takes an act of God. It's not an easy thing. There are obstacles. There are stumbling blocks. There's confusion and misunderstanding and unresolved issues. And this would seem to be part of this larger thing. I've mentioned it before. In, in the Gospel of John, there's this recurring theme of Jesus being misunderstood, rejected because he's misunderstood, uh, mistreated because he's misunderstood, ultimately crucified because he's misunderstood. And there's this very clear sense that at least part of the point there is that as followers of Jesus, we should expect nothing less. As he says later, if the world hates you, know that it first hated me. Expect that there are going to be people who misunderstand what you're about. Expect that you're going to be mischaracterized. Expect that you're going to be misunderstood. Expect that there will be challenges if you're following me because that's how it went for me. Don't expect that you're going to do better. <clears throat> when I look at this passage and the, the, the things that are hard, the, you know, the good reasons not to follow Jesus, this is one of those passages, um, I think about my buddy who I've mentioned before who's a uh, missionary in Istanbul. I think he's lived there six or seven years now. <clears throat> and Istanbul is in Turkey, which is a Muslim nation. Everyone, you know, to be Turkish is to be Muslim. That's just part of the thing. And there are a number of serious challenges to being a Christian if you live in Istanbul, uh, if you're Turkish. For one thing, there's really not a great understanding of what Christianity or Jesus is about. My buddy has asked Turkish people, you know, what Christians can you think of? Or like, when you think Christian, what do you think of? And this is crazy, but the, the, two, the two names 
that people will bring up the most, Michael Jackson and Madonna. That's what people think when they think Christian in Turkey. That is... <laughs> I don't know what you mean, sister. Um, so, so, so there's a lot of, there's not a lot of, under, not a lot of opportunity to correctly understand what Christianity is about in this context. Not only that, but because uh, being, is, being Muslim is so important to Turkish identity, it's a given, and anyone would know this, if you turn from Islam and become a follower of Jesus, you're alienating yourself from everyone you know and love. Your whole family, all your friends are going to disown you. This is a given because you've departed from this key aspect of society. You've, you've cast off part of your identity that's very important to everybody. So the church is literally your new family if you become a follower of Jesus because you have no one else. Not that appealing. And frankly, though it's not necessarily illegal to be a Christian in Istanbul, there are people who aren't very happy about it. Pastors have been murdered in this city recently. Bombs have been placed in buildings where Christians do things. Not too many years ago, this happens. There's violence. ISIS is not that far away. <clears throat> so there's a lot of genuine danger associated with being a follower of Jesus. If the other stuff wasn't an obstacle enough, there are a lot of good reasons not to follow Jesus if you're a Turkish person in Istanbul. And it turns out that when a Turkish person does come to Jesus, and occasionally they do, usually they've had some sort of profound vision where Jesus actually speaks to them in a dream or something like that. That's what it takes, understandably so, for someone to come to Jesus in a place like that. It's very clear in this context that, number one, there are a lot of obstacles, a lot of hurdles, a lot of challenges, a lot of good reasons to rethink whether you want to be a Christian there, and that, as this passage is talking about, it takes an act of God to get there. It takes an act of God to, to seriously have any good reason to follow Jesus. <clears throat> okay, verse 66. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. I don't know how you feel, but there are a number of things that frustrate me about being a Christian. I don't think I'm the only one. Uh, before I got saved, my life was a lot more comfortable. I had money. Uh, I could do whatever I felt like doing, and if it felt like a morally questionable thing, I'd just find some way to justify it to myself and move on and do what I wanted anyway. There were a lot less hard choices. There were a lot less hard trade-offs. I had a lot easier time. I was, I was just a lot generally more comfortable and peaceful, and you know things were easier before I started following Jesus. Not only that, but I'm not, I don't know how you feel about this, I'm not comfortable with everything I get associated with, just like folks in Turkey associate Christians with Michael Jackson and Madonna. I'm not comfortable with everything I get associated with being a Christian in America either. I don't know if you feel that way. Um, it's gotten to the point that if I'm on social media or news media, any sentence that starts with the word evangelicals, I start cringing. Yeah. What now? What now? <sighs> it's hard. Um, but I'm too convinced that Jesus is the one with the words of eternal life, that he is who he says he is, that he is real, that he does have 
uh, eternal life and that he does have real power from God. I'm too convinced of this uh, to turn away or quit or whatever, no matter how frustrated I get. I'm too convinced he's shown me too much. I'm all in for Jesus uh, because God has done a work in me to bring me to him. And there will be days, uh, most likely, if you're walking with Jesus, there will be days when something offends you about Jesus or when something offends you about your circumstances or when someone else is offended at you in some way because you're a follower of Jesus. There will be frustrations. There will be disappointments. There will be unresolved questions and unclarity. And Jesus, as we've seen in this passage, doesn't always go out of his way to straighten out our unresolved questions. Sometimes he leaves those hanging and he's perfectly happy to let us dangle a little bit. Sometimes um, we can expect that there's going to be a certain amount of rejection if we follow Jesus or that someone will misunderstand us, that we'll be misrepresented, that things will be imposed on us that aren't fair. And of course there's, you know, there's places where people are worse off. I'm not trying to whine too much, but we have to expect that uh, frustrations in the here and now come with the territory if you're following Jesus. That's just to be expected. And sometimes the right prayer in those situations is not, sometimes the right prayer is fix it, and sometimes God does fix those frustrations. But frankly, sometimes that's not the right prayer. Sometimes what God wants to do is enable us to be faithful, to continue believing that he's good when we have contrary evidence or to continue to be faithful when it's actually following Jesus doesn't feel that appealing right now or there's some frustration or there's some question that I really want resolved and he hasn't resolved yet. Uh, Sometimes it's just I need perseverance in the face of hardship. Sometimes that's the right prayer. And so if I'm going to tie together the overall kind of themes I see in this passage, I'd say three things. First, This idea that Jesus is the source of life. He's where eternal life comes from. We can get lots of what we get at church. We can get other places. But eternal life, you're only going to get in Jesus Christ. We're dependent on him for that. Second, many people follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. People that are looking for the wrong kind of bread. Or they're looking for only um, a certain kind of thing and not eternal life. Not the thing that ultimately Jesus is about. And if someone's, look, if someone's following Jesus for the wrong reasons, when things do get hard, when things do get frustrating, when there are these obstacles and challenges, um, more than likely they're going to give in sooner or later and leave, just like many of the people following Jesus, who he fed miraculously in the wilderness, turn from him when he is saying offensive things. And then third point, it is, uh, it's possible to get too focused on that let's say, earthly bread rather than true bread. Now, for the last couple of years, we've been talking a lot about expecting God to act in the here and now, expecting what we might call the, the, the standard bread, the here and now bread, um, expecting that, that God's salvation is pertinent to our life in the present and our affairs in the present. And I've been as much a proponent of talking about that as anyone because a lot of Christians don't get that. And we want to change our thinking to expect that God is relevant and God will work in the here and now. But when we're talking about this tension between the now and the not yet, I want to be clear. The not yet is the main thing. Eternal life, which is coming about in the future that we look forward to. Uh, Eternal life, not as dying and going to heaven, but as heaven coming to earth. Resurrected bodies, glorified creation. 
This is the main thing that we ought to look forward to. And though it's wonderful to see God work in the here and now, sometimes that's not how it goes. Sometimes we're quite frustrated by the here and now. And if we are overly focused on expecting to see God work in the here and now, if we don't ultimately anchor our faith in eternal life, the hope of what God is bringing about, present frustrations might trip us up too much. If you are sick and you've been praying and praying for healing and you don't get healed, which has been the last decade of my and my wife's life, uh, if you're only focused on God's blessings in the here and now, that's a problem. You must keep sight on, well, ultimately, healing's going to come. If it doesn't come today, if it doesn't come in the next few decades, ultimately, if you're sick today, you will be healed. That's where God is bringing the world. There will be no sickness in the kingdom of God. If you don't have enough now, well, you know, I'm happy to pray for God to provide. But if you feel frustrated that you don't have enough now, ultimately that will end. And so even if you feel like, I really wish God was acting quicker about this, sometimes we need to hold on to, well, ultimately this will come to an end. Ultimately all these things, name your favorite problem, these things will ultimately come to an end, and that's what our faith needs to be uh, the most thoroughly founded on, the hope of what God is bringing about at the end of the age. Okay, so um, I do think, based on just how some prayers, what we've been hearing from the Lord in prayer recently, I do think that there are some people who have gotten kind of torn down by present frustrations of different kinds. I don't know what all of them are. I think there are people who have gotten into a little bit of a funk or maybe uh, are content to kind of limp along spiritually and not necess- aren't necessarily running eagerly towards Jesus um, because of these frustrations, because of unresolved issues or whatever it is. I know, I know some people specifically, but there may be others I don't know about. And the sense is that, um, and Troy's going to say a little bit more about this based on a word he got uh, today, I think. But um, there's a sense that God is going to put some new passions, some new um, sparks in people, and I think that some of that will happen today. So we want to pursue that in prayer. Um, We're also going to, because we're talking about Jesus being the bread of life, we want to receive the bread and the cup here. But then once you've done that, Uh, If you want to be prayed for, there'll be people by the bottom of the stairs. And so uh, I encourage you, if this applies to you, to um, receive prayer and let's see if we can figure out what God wants to do. Troy? Hi. So earlier today, a few of us were upstairs in the office praying, listening. Lord, what are you saying? And one of the things that we felt like the Lord was saying was, um, what is calling? Oh, um, just kidding. Uh, I saw a picture. One of the things that we felt like the Lord was saying was uh, that there's, I think there's a temptation for us to be inert, to be, um, to numb. And 
the picture that I had uh, was actually a couple pictures. The first one was uh, a picture of a a woman's hand, and it was very manicured and um, it, was, it was very nice. <laughs> it was on someone's uh, shoulder, and uh, and to me that that represented uh, seduction. And the next picture was of this beautiful ring. It was gorgeous. It's bright and shiny, and um, the actual stone on it was kryptonite. And um, this idea that we, and I think it's a mix of our culture and um, like unseen um, dark powers. Um, Jesus does talk about that. There is an unseen spiritual realm. Um, I think it's a mix probably of at least those two things um, where we're actually tempted and probably there are some of us here, maybe a lot of us, I don't know. Um, I, I certainly resonate with this. Um, who numb out and are very um, okay with just kind of going along with life. Um, I don't want to get too too invested. I don't want to um, I don't want to get hurt. <laughs> you know, maybe Jesus has let me down before and trust has has frayed. And so I, it's just going to be easier for me to, to disengage, just kind of lie in my bed and wear my ring. And some of us maybe know that we're sort of wearing that ring of kryptonite. And maybe others of us are not aware that we're wearing that ring. Um, but I, I, I feel that the Lord is inviting us to repent, to turn from that, um, and to move towards Jesus and ask him to come and invite him into that and ask him to help us turn from that and get out of that. So that's what we were sensing. And... We're going to take communion, and we're going to invite everyone up, um, and I would encourage you to, to ask the Lord uh, to help you to see if you are in this place of numbness, um, of inertia, uh, that he would show you. And, or if you already know that you're there, um, that you would ask him for help to be able to turn and go a different way. Does that make sense? Amen. So we're going to take communion. And Bill and Brady are going to facilitate that. So everyone come, you're all invited.